0: Last week in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, a city that has been bombarded with missile strikes and air assaults, there was a concert.
1: The Kiev Classic Symphony Orchestra, which is the main orchestra of the Central Music Academy here in in Kyiv, they decided to hold a concert for the first time since Russia's invasion began.
0: That's reporter Siddharthson Raghavan.
1: And the whole purpose of this concert was to show strength and to defiantly show Russia that the people of Ukraine are courageous and willing to play their music out in the open. <laughs> and they chose a very symbolic place to do that.
0: The concert was held in Independence Square. Historically, it's been the site of protests and revolution. And on Wednesday, it was the site of this public act of unity and resistance against Russia. 20 musicians, bundled up in thick coats and jackets, playing under the open sky, despite the constant threat of missiles or falling bombs.
1: There about roughly about 25 Ukrainians there and they were clapping after every uh, composition that they played. Uh, Fortunately, it was extremely quiet during the uh, performance. We didn't hear any shells landing. A few moments afterwards, the air raid sirens went off, Uh, and so people started to move away from the square.
0: It's been almost three weeks since the start of the Russian assault on Ukraine. Over the weekend, attacks extended out to western Ukraine, where a barrage of missiles slammed into a military facility about 15 miles from the border with Poland. But for now, Kyiv is still under Ukrainian control. The Ukrainian government is still in place. And Russia is clearly having a much harder time with this invasion than most people imagined. Today, we're trying to understand why. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 14th. In today's show, we're talking to national security reporter Shane Harris about the failures of Russia's military strategy, the surprising strength of Ukrainian troops, and some possible outcomes for how all of this could end, hopefully without going to nuclear war. So, Shane Harris, thinking back to maybe a month ago, U.S. intelligence was predicting that the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv would fall to Russia in a matter of days. But it's been more than two weeks since the start of the war. The capital is still in Ukrainian hands. And I'm wondering, why is this proving so much harder for Russia than people predicted?
2: I think broadly there are two big reasons. The first is the Ukrainian people's will to fight and the Ukrainian militaries is, I think, greater than a lot of people had anticipated, particularly Vladimir Putin. I think he may have been suffering under the illusion that Russian forces would be sort of greeted as liberators, to borrow from an older phrase, and that they would be welcomed and that the population would not rise up, that President Zelensky would sort of capitulate and negotiate. Uh, And frankly, I think that Vladimir Putin, from, from my reporting, thought that they would take key in two days and remove Zelensky altogether uh, and replace him with a puppet. The second is that this ferocious, feared Russian military machine turns out to be uh, a lot less maybe than people had thought it was. It has been plagued by logistical problems, what appears to be some really terrible planning on the part of Russian military commanders, low morale among the troops, troops who apparently didn't know they were actually being sent into a war, who thought they had gone off on a training exercise. So the logistical, the morale, and the organizational screw-ups of the Russian military have also caused it to be bogged down and have meant that this war that Putin thought would be over maybe in a week is now looking to stretch into many weeks, if not months.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit more about why so many people thought that this was a war that Russia could easily win. Like, what were their presumed strengths going into this?
2: Some of the presumed strengths were that they had overwhelming numbers of troops and that they were going up against a Ukrainian military that is not as large that doesn't have as much advanced weaponry that importantly does not have a lot of anti-aircraft weapons in any military campaign you know a military goes in and one of the first things it tries to do is knock out what are called the command and control systems. So the sort of key pieces that keep a military in a country communicating, that help the leaders communicate effectively with their generals and people in the field. And then they also try and take out uh, essentially the air power of that country. Well, Ukraine doesn't have a huge air force, but Russia thought, I I think most analysts thought that Russia would try to do these North Standard things to establish what's called air superiority or air dominance over Ukraine. And then they would move the troops in and kind of proceed this way. They didn't do that in the beginning and they actually failed to take some pretty key strategic targets. So a lot of the things that analysts thought that Russians would do because it's kind of in the standard playbook for when a country invades another country, they just didn't do. Why not? The Air Force bit of it is is very puzzling to us still. You know, Russia has a capable Air Force that could have gone in, taken out these command and control targets, presumably secured airports and air facilities, and, and basically controlled the skies over Ukraine. We still are questioning why that didn't happen. Were the planes not ready? Were the pilots not prepared? There's been some reporting and even some of the pilots were concerned about flying over Ukraine for fear of being shot down by Russian forces, which kind of have a history of friendly fire accidents. This is something still of a mystery. Why hasn't Putin committed more of the air force? And that's before we even get to, you know, the mechanical logistical problems with the ground force. So in some ways, it's not even just that The Russians faced a more formidable adversary than they thought they would. They didn't even necessarily execute the playbook the way I think a lot of people, including those in the U.S., thought they would. And we're still unclear as to why.
0: How much do you think this was also an intelligence issue for President Putin, that he didn't have the right information about what this conflict would actually look like once Russian troops got into Ukraine?
2: I think it's early to say, but you could probably start building the argument that there's been a pretty significant intelligence failure in Russia. We do know from our own reporting from you know US officials that they believe that Putin is surrounded by a very small circle of advisors. We're talking maybe like two people that he really listens to very closely. And one of them uh, is the head of the FSB, which is an intelligence agency. It's not a military intelligence agency, notably. But I think his advisors may have been telling him that this was going to be easier than it really was. One of the first things that I remember hearing from U.S. and Western intelligence officials before the invasion was they believed that Putin was being given a very rosy prognosis or forecast for how this invasion was going to go and that they thought it's going to be harder than he thinks and that these sort of advisors around him, who some of them are yes men, but also some of them, I think, truly believe in this mission of, you know, a greater Russia, also thought it would be easier. And they may have just profoundly misjudged this. It would be one of the great intelligence failures in recent history, if so. But I think he was, Putin was probably given a picture of a Ukraine that he thought would be compliant, a military that would be easily defeated, and an idea that his own military was ready and in fighting shape, and they clearly were not.
0: You mentioned that some Russian troops say that they went into this thinking that this was just going to be a training exercise and not an actual invasion. Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of some of what has been experienced by Russian troops or the ways that they are running into trouble on the ground?
2: We've seen these really provocative kind of vivid social media videos that have gone around of young Russian troops who've been captured by Ukrainian forces, uh, sending home messages to their parents. We've seen the... A uh, messages being read by the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations from what he said was a Russian soldier who had only learned that he was actually being sent into real combat and not a training exercise. And he's texting with his mother saying, this isn't what they told us it was going to be. We're here killing civilians. The ambassador said that that Russian soldier himself was killed not long after he sent the text messages. And a lot of these videos and a lot of the messages that we're seeing, you're hearing stories from young men. uh, We're talking, you know, in their late teens, probably, early 20s in some cases. Some of them certainly conscripts into the army, being told that they were lied to. Essentially said, you're going to Belarus to do a military exercise, and then they find themselves crossing the border in live combat. Notably, too, a lot of these troops... Because they were conscripted, this is not a volunteer army, so it's questionable how much they even wanted to be there. They may not even have understood that they were ever signing up for an active military conflict. And so they've been trying to get these messages back to their family at home. There's one video of a young soldier who's being fed and giving, like, hot tea by the Ukrainians, and he starts crying as he's FaceTiming with his mother. A lot of people have seen that. I think it kind of captures the sentiment of a lot of these not professional soldiers, I think it's the way to think of them, when they find themselves in this life-or-death situation and feel that they were lied to about it before they left.
0: After the break, I talk with Shane about how the Ukrainian military has held out for so long. We'll be right back. Shane, we started out the conversation talking about the fact that this is not only a demonstration of some of the shortcomings of Russian troops, but also the strengths of Ukrainian troops. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by that and how Ukraine is coming out stronger and more forceful in this than what people predicted?
2: If we look at the Ukrainian military, they have proven to be really quite adept at using weapons supplied to them from the U.S. and from other Western countries, particularly to take out Russian tanks using anti-tank missiles known as javelins, uh, and also to hit convoys with shoulder-fired missiles so they can go and they can find these tanks and also these supply trucks and sort of strategically hit them and not only take them out of commission, but if you like, kind of clog up the works for the other Russian forces that are trying to come in and take these cities. The Air Force has actually proved to be quite capable as well. There's been some estimates I've seen that Ukraine probably has still half of its Air Force left, which is they're doing pretty well. They've been using Turkish made drones um, to fly over some of these convoys and attack them as well. It's too early to say whether the Ukrainian military has sort of turned the tide of the war against Russia. They've been far more successful than a lot of people thought that they would be at killing Russian troops, taking out Russian armor. And so while they're not necessarily as large in number and perhaps even not as well-trained, at least historically as the Russian military, they've adopted these kinds of tactics that are kind of reminiscent in some ways of an insurgency where you go and you, you, you know you're overwhelmed by the adversary's numbers, so you come and you hit them at kind of key points strategically. The thing that they're not, of course, really able to do is control the skies, and it's been very difficult to control the artillery shelling that's been going on in the major cities. So the advantage that the Russians have is that they can essentially use siege tactics to surround a city, shell it, cut it off from food and water supplies, basically starve it. We're talking about, you know tactics that were developed in the medieval era. Um, And this is what they've done in Chechnya. That's what they've done in Syria. And we seem to be seeing that playbook repeating. That's going to be much harder for a smaller Ukrainian force to resist. They're good at being nimble and kind of hitting tanks and planes out in the field. Uh, It's going to be much more difficult for them to attack head-on these artillery batteries that are just pummeling some of the major cities.
0: And I think that also brings up the question of casualties, right? Because if this isn't going to be, you know, the, the two-day invasion that Putin had envisioned, that the, the more limited targeted approach isn't effective, I mean, I wonder how much that has resulted in what we're seeing of civilians being targeted or a more overwhelming campaign where it's clear that Putin doesn't really care if he hits a maternity ward or other civilian centers because this has gone way beyond what he expected.
2: I think that's right. I mean, it's very hard to get Russian casualty figures. They're kind of wildly all over the map, but I can say that they're certainly all the estimates are in the thousands. And I think everyone agrees it's probably north of five or six thousand, although it's hard to get a specific number. That's a huge number of troops for him to have lost in, effectively, a less than three-week-old campaign. And and you're right to see, I think, the turning from what he thought would be a quick military victory into this kind of punishment of the cities, including what appears to be, if not deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure and targets, then no real care to avoid them uh, of any meaningful way. But this is kind of the playbook of where if if Putin doesn't think that it's going to be a quick military victory and he's taking casualties, then he has to make life as miserable and as terrible for the people of Ukraine in order to try and get the government of Ukraine to capitulate. And that's what we see him doing now, I think.
0: And what about the prospect for Kyiv? There have been questions um, for the last few days about how long the capital is going to be able to hold out. What is your sense of how close Russia is to actually being able to take control of the city?
2: I don't think they're close to being able to take control of Kiev as they are some of the other cities like Mariupol uh, and others maybe in the south. But that doesn't mean they won't eventually get there. You know, the original estimates from the U.S. side were that Kyiv could fall in 48 to 72 hours. That did not come to pass, and we'll learn more about why those estimates were off, I suppose, going forward. We've talked about some of them already. But I don't think that it's reasonable to think that, you know, the capital can simply just hold out forever. The question is really going to be, Whether or not the Russian forces can effectively encircle it and cut it off from the outside world and basically, you know, starve it, if you want to think of it that way. It's a very large city, though. We're talking three million people. It's a major city. And the attempts so far to take it quickly have failed. So we will have to wait and see. But I think the situation there, it's, it's deteriorating. You're not seeing Kiev becoming more resilient. The Ukrainians, hard as they have fought and organized as they are, don't have the numbers to resist the kind of siege tactics that Russia is going to, it is using now and will keep using.
0: We heard reports over the weekend that the Russian assault on Ukraine has expanded to western Ukraine, close to the border with Poland. Can you tell me what are the theories behind why that's happening and what are the risks of that, of bombing Ukraine so close to another country? Probably
2: the big reason for this missile and rocket attack on this city very close to the border with Poland is that the Russians publicly said a few days ago that they consider any weapons supplies coming in from NATO member countries, from other European countries the West, to be, as they put it, legitimate targets, which raised the question of whether they would view them as targets, not just while they're traveling on Ukrainian territory, but could they view them as targets while they were sitting across the border in Poland, where they might be staging to move across the border? And so when the attack came so close to the border, it made people very nervous because if Russia attacks inside a NATO country, then we are all faced with the prospect of whether a NATO member state has been attacked by Russia, and therefore the mutual self-defense plank of NATO, which is its essence, its core, is then triggered. And does that mean that NATO is now looking at being at war with Russia? I think that officials would do everything they could probably to try and view a strike maybe right over the border on the supply depot, let's say, as something that was limited. Uh, they would try to not react too strongly to that. Um, but Russia is provocative by doing these targetings so close to the border with Poland. And, and I think it's, it's deliberate. You've not seen any great effort by Russian ground forces to try and seize the western part of Ukraine. Where this happened is actually a fairly, an area of the country that is pretty well controlled by Ukraine. It's a much safer place. The rocket attacks them, make everyone nervous. And when they're only landing 30 miles or so from a border, it's not hard to imagine one of those going over that border. And then we're in a very different picture.
0: But at the same time, it's clear that Ukrainian officials and President Zelensky in particular want NATO to get involved and want there to be a reason for Western Europe to come to the defense of Ukrainians or feel like they have to escalate their opposition to Russia. Can you talk a little bit more about what Zelensky is asking for from NATO, from the EU, from the US, and why there are hesitations about giving Ukraine more support right now?
2: President Zelensky wants much more direct intervention by NATO countries, which those countries are simply not willing to give. The most visible one that he talks about the most, that gets the most attention, is called a no-fly zone. He wants NATO aircraft to keep Russian aircraft from flying over Ukraine, which in theory sounds fairly straightforward, and maybe that sounds like a defensive measure, Except that in order to enforce a no-fly zone, one country has to be willing to shoot down any other plane from another country that's violating it. So NATO looks at this and says, this is a recipe for disaster. You're guaranteeing that NATO aircraft are going to come into direct fire in conflict with Russian aircraft. So that's been a non-starter. So, so,
0: but why can't Ukraine just do this themselves and declare a no-fly zone? Why do they need other countries to help them with that?
2: Ukraine doesn't have the Air Force capable of doing this. Their aircraft, they have to preserve them, and they're being devoted right now to other missions. What Ukraine wants is basically for NATO, if you like, and their view, I think, is to sort of use its overwhelming air superiority to come in and control the skies over Ukraine. In a way that Ukraine cannot do on its own because it doesn't have enough aircraft. Now, that in theory, I mean, sounds like, okay, sure, like put NATO airplanes over it, they'll fly around, they'll just keep everybody calm. But what a no-fly zone really means is it becomes an active combat zone the minute the country you're trying to keep out violates the airspace. So NATO looks at this and says, no-fly zone means we are going to be having air-to-air combat with Russian planes. And if a NATO plane shoots down a Russian plane, We then ask the question, did we just start World War III?
0: What else could uh, the U.S. or Western Europe be doing to support Ukraine that they are leery of doing?
2: They're leery of putting troops on the ground. They are leery of lending them or giving them airplanes themselves. I mean, the question of the no-fly zone, why couldn't Ukraine do it? Ukraine has been asking from Poland for about 30 or so Russian-made MiG fighter jets, which they want to use for their own air defense or fighting the Russians. NATO in the United States in particular actually has been very reluctant to do that because U.S. intelligence officials say that they think the Russians would read that as a step too far, that giving aircraft from a NATO member country... To Ukraine, the Russians might read that as effectively NATO has joined the fight. You know, lawmakers last week in an open session in Congress, grilled intelligence officials and say, "Well, hang on a second. We're already giving." We, the United States, and our NATO allies are already giving shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians. We're giving shoulder-fired surface-to-air stinger missiles to shoot down planes. The Russians don't seem to read that as NATO having joined the fight. Why do you think they're going to read giving them airplanes as that? They'll be Ukrainian pilots. They're not going to be Polish pilots or American pilots. And for reasons that we still don't fully understand, the Americans have estimated that, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but the Russians are going to read that as differently. And the best the best answer I've heard to this is that the Russians see a soldier with a shoulder-fired weapon, you know, who can only shoot what's in front of him as one kind of threat. But they see a pilot flying around in an airplane with the ability to hit lots of targets, maybe many, many miles apart from one another, as a whole different order of threat, much, much higher and graver to them. So this is why the West has been reluctant. Now, having talked to a senior aide to President Zelensky, I don't think that they find these explanations um, remotely satisfying. I think they say, look, you're kind of already in the fight. You're giving us money. You're supporting us in lots of other ways. Give us these planes. And, you know, the Russians are not going to launch a nuclear weapon. They're not going to want to try to start a wider war. Just do it. NATO officials and U.S. officials are much more conservative in their estimates right now than President Zelensky is. Understandably so. President Zelensky is the one whose country has been invaded, and it's his life and his people's lives that are on the line. So you can imagine, it's not hard to imagine, why they want NATO to be much more aggressive than they are being.
0: Shane, we've talked in the past about President Putin and how he is a person who— Does not like to lose. And I think it would be going too far to say that Russia is losing this war, but it does beg the question of what does winning look like for Putin and what would he be willing to accept as a win? What are the possible end games for this, for Russia to save face, but still bring this conflict to a conclusion?
2: I think right now, and I think this is what officials are banking on to some degree, is that Putin will accept something short of replacing President Zelensky as the leader of Ukraine. I mean, his original plan, I think, was to go in, decapitate the government, and put a puppet government in Kiev. He may not get that, even if President Zelensky had to leave Kiev, there are plans in place to have him form a government in exile in another country, and no one is going to recognize the government that Vladimir Putin puts in place, except maybe the Chinese might, maybe Belarus, but the West is not going to. So the question now is, would Putin settle for maybe taking control of those two provinces in the east of Ukraine that he recognized as independent that were already these so-called breakaway republics? Would he settle for controlling some portion of the south of Ukraine. Really, the important question, too, is would President Zelensky and would Ukraine settle for giving away portions of their country to Russia? They have signaled that they are open to negotiations. And I think a lot of smart analysts that I've heard from have speculated You know, you could imagine an ending in which Putin says, I'll withdraw my forces, but we are effectively going to annex these two republics in the East, and maybe we just take them, or maybe if you want to do a referendum and let the people vote, whatever. But that essentially it takes some pieces of territory in the East and maybe in the South, and Putin calls that a win. It's going to be hard for Putin, I think, though, to stomach that, because in his mind, he wants all of Ukraine. But the more he loses in troops, the more money he loses, the more personal wealth of his that evaporates from sanctions, I think there's a chance that he is more willing to cut his losses and try to save face here. He can't be seen to have been humiliated and utterly defeated. I was talking to some people about this over the past few days who very much ominously warned U.S. officials saying a cornered Putin is a very dangerous Putin. And they're trying very hard right now not to overtly give him an off-ramp so much, but as a way of saying, look, there is still time for you to choose a way out of this thing that doesn't have to end with you losing tens or hundreds of thousands of troops and being driven to the brink of doing something you know, as potentially catastrophic as trying to use a tactical nuclear weapon in battle, which is something that we have to consider he might do.
0: Shane, thank you so much. You're welcome.
2: Always good to talk to
0: you. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. Ariel Plotnick and Jordan Marie Smith produced today's show. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. As the Russian military continues to face challenges in taking control of Ukraine, the Russian government is looking for help. According to U.S. officials who spoke to the Post, Russia has asked China for military equipment and aid, though Chinese officials denied this. Today, the U.S. warned China that providing Russia with assistance would result in, quote, significant consequences. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports.